0: All right, here to continue our John series is Heather
1: Kamara. Thank you. I love seeing all those hands raised for small groups. Oh, so good. So good. Um, We are starting, or we're kind of in the beginning still, first three weeks, right, of a new series called The Gospel of John, and I am really loving it. What about you guys? It's been good I, getting to go through a gospel like this all the way through. I mean, we, we're not going to hit every chapter, but I am just I'm really excited to see what the Lord's going to kind of show us and teach us along the way. And John, uh, what I love about this book is John's real specific about the purpose of this book. So much so, he actually writes it at the end of the, the book, and this is what he says, "These words are written so that you may believe." And Michael shared this two weeks ago, and I love that that John wants to share this knowledge that he had of Jesus with others so that they would believe the way that he believes. And he was the beloved disciple, right? You know, he, he walked and ate and, and lived with Jesus. And it wasn't just somebody he knew at a distance. It was somebody he actually did life with. And, and you can see, like, 50 years later, here he's writing this gospel. And that passion and that love for Jesus is still so evident in these pages, isn't it? And so I think that's our goal and our hope for this series, for us, is to reignite some of that, that wonder, some of that love for Jesus and, and uh, trust and rely on him more. Uh, one of the reasons why I also love the Gospel of John is that it's filled with these really sweet narratives, these accounts of encounters that Jesus has with people from all walks of life. And I, I love that, and if, has anyone ever heard of the blog uh, Humans of New York? Yeah, okay, so some of you have It was started in 2010. It actually didn't start out as a blog at all. it was a, a he was trying to get his own business started photography business. and in 2010, Brandon Stanton had this really crazy idea of just simply photographing 10,000 New Yorkers on the side of the street, literally just stopping people in the road and saying, hey, can I take your picture for my photography project? And what he couldn't help but do, which he wasn't planning on, was asking them a little bit of their story. And you could almost see in these pictures, you know, the the wrinkles on their face and, and the clothes they were wearing. They had a story. I mean, we all do, right? And there's something that really captivates us about people's personal stories. And what's crazy about his blog is it shot through the roof 20 million viewers or subscribers, and, and now he's taking pictures of people all over the world. What does that say about us as, a, as people? It says we're, we're captivated by narratives, by getting to come inside of a personal story, because it teaches us something, right? It teaches us something about ourselves, not just them, but ourselves and this world. And so today, the story we're gonna get to read today is is really no different. Last week, we read about who? It was another story, a conversation that Jesus had. It was with Nicodemus, right? And it was in chapter three, and and what's interesting here is that this conversation, which precedes this chapter, was uh, with Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. It was a conversation that he had at night with Jesus, And and being a Pharisee, he was actually one of the the elite Jewish teachers of his day. And so what's interesting in today's story, a very different conversation, this one's actually in the middle of the day, at high noon. And it's with a no-name woman, a no-name woman, at a simple little well. And surprising, what I love that I found out as I did some digging in this in this passage is that this is actually, not the one before it, but this conversation that this woman, this no-name woman, has with Jesus at the side of this well is the longest one-on-one conversation ever recorded in the entire Bible. And so Jesus and her, this conversation we're going to get to dig in, into it a little bit more today, and, and I'm excited to, to see just not just about this woman, but about how Jesus how Jesus encounters her. So let's just pray, invite the Holy Spirit to come more. Lord, we we thank you for your presence with us. Lord, worship is just so sweet today, and I just pray you would come more. Lord, would you just make us more aware of your spirit and your presence with us. And we thank you that wherever we are and wherever we are going through and whatever we brought with us through those doors today, that in your word we can find encouragement and hope. And I pray that we would hear from you today, that Jesus, you would be revealed to us. Mm. Would you fill me right now with your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. So who here, just as a census, who has actually heard of the story of the woman at the well before? Yeah, that's not intimidating for me at all. (laughs) I should just go sit back down. We've all probably heard at least of the woman at the well, if not heard her story Um, And we all have our assumptions coming into this text today. But I have so grown to love this story. So grown to love this story. It's become one of my favorites. And I don't think it's just because I'm a woman, even though I can identify with the main character. I think that honestly what compels me most is how Jesus interacts with this no-name woman. That captivates me every time I read this text. So no matter if we're a man or a woman or we're young or we're old, I think this story is for you. I really do. I think that honestly we all have insecurities that are pulling us away from people in our lives, from even living just more wholeheartedly with those that we interact with on a daily basis. We all have shame that can weigh us down and isolate us and And I think what we'll see today is that Jesus does not condemn us the way that we do our our own selves at times. And he doesn't withdraw from us at all. He actually pursues us, he fills us, and he actually calls us. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles or your apps to the fourth chapter of John, and if you need a Bible, we have some on either side of the stage and in the back, and feel free to take that with you if you don't have one at home. <clears throat> so as this story begins, Jesus is in Judea, and as is often the case with Jesus, he's, qui- he's causing quite a stir. And so to kind of alleviate the heat, uh, him and his disciples decide to go north to Galilee. And we pick up in John 4, 4 through 6. I'm actually going to read it from my Bible. <clears throat> now, he had to go through Samaria So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and near a plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, just a little context, because I think it's always helpful as we enter a text. Palestine was split up into three regions, three big regions. I actually have a map for you, because it's nice to have a visual, right? So Judea is in the south, and Samaria is in the middle, and Galilee is in the north. So if you wanted to get from Judea to Galilee, obviously we go straight up through Samaria. It's kind of like if you're in Cincinnati and you want to go to Cleveland, you're going to probably go through Columbus, right? But as as John says later on in the text, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And we see there's a reason why this actually going straight through, like Jesus and his disciples are doing today, that's actually not the common route at all. Jews would actually traditionally take the roundabout way, a whole way around Samaria, twice as long of a journey, six more days of walking just to intentionally avoid Samaria altogether. The Jews to, to the Jews, Samaritans were seen as unclean, and, and I know that's not a common word that we use today. But back in 722 BC, these once-Jewish people had been conquered by Assyria and relocated to various villages with other conquered nations. So this led to intermarrying and even adopting other gods and other beliefs. Now, after the Jews themselves came back from their Babylonian exile, they had a really strong desire to maintain a pure bloodline, which resulted in a very strict segregation belief system between them and any one of a mixed-race people. And in reaction to this, so the Samaritans decided, you know what, fine, we're going to make our own Bible and we're going to build our own temple which was, again, just even more of a salt to the Jews, right? So they hated each other. They despised one another. They avoided each other at all costs. Man, I mean, this is like they seethed with a lot of just hate toward one another. But what do we see in verse 4? We see that John actually says this specifically. He points out that Jesus had to go to Samaria, and when you look at that word "had" in the Greek, which it did, it's "ide" and it actually means necessity. It actually denotes like a divine appointment, as though Jesus had a bigger reason for why he had to go through Samaria that day. So we know this is not the easiest route. It was actually through some really hilly country. It wasn't the common route, and it wasn't the preferred route. Jesus had to go because the Father had somebody for him to meet. And now, as a, just a quick side note. Anyone else read this passage and, and just think to themselves, Jesus was tired? <laughs> That's kind of funny to think about when you know that Jesus is fully God, but we forget sometimes that he's also fully man, Right? That he was limited by his body. And after a full day of walking and probably up late with Nicodemus the night before, you know, like he's probably really tired. And of all the things he probably wanted to do, it just sit there alone and not talk to anybody. I get that. I so get that. But here he is, John's actually saying he's limited and he understands when we're tired and we're weary, he actually gets it. And what you'll find later on in the chapter, which we're not going to cover today, but, but Jesus actually uncovers this kingdom reality later on. He says, though our bodies might be tired and hungry, when we're doing God's will and we're operating within the grace of God, within the grace of God, that there's this living water from within, that even though we're tired on the outside, we're actually renewed on the inside. And Jesus is constantly doing this. He's constantly going back to the Father and only doing what the Father is doing. And in that, he's, he has this divine rhythm of grace where he's receiving from the Father and then he's just giving it away. And I just really love that picture. It's a real comfort to me. But I don't think John left that, I think he put that there on purpose. And I think it's both the plan of God and the provision of God that he stopped right there, tired as he was, Jesus intentionally engages in a conversation with a woman, and this divine encounter changes her life. Now, some of us, honestly, we don't use that word a lot, divine encounter. I mean, who really talks like that? (laughs) But God actually wants us to have divine encounters during our day. He loves to show us that He's active and that He's working in our midst. And maybe he wants to just think about it. Maybe he wants to use you to engage with somebody, maybe at a grocery store. I mean, it's usually when you're doing menial things, right? That he's saying, hey, go tell that person that I love them. You're like, really? I don't know them. That's so weird. They're going to look at me like I have three heads, which they do a little bit. But who knows how God could use you? And think of the times where somebody like a stranger has stopped you and said, you know, God's on you, or or the Lord is shining through you, or God really loves you, and, and just totally surprises you, and you're like, that's weird, but you walk away, and you go, wow, thank you, Lord, I needed that, and I think the Lord loves to work through these divine encounters, and I have a great story that I read recently of Stuart and Jill Briscoe, who are just pastors and missionaries, and they were on a short trip working at a Bible school in England, of all places, and Stuart was teaching that day, so Jill had borrowed a car and was just driving down the road, driving on the other side of the road, (laughs) driving down the road, and she saw these three girls, uh, hitchhiking girls, just on the side of the road, backpacking along. She actually offered them a ride. And what was cool is that she actually persuaded them. She found out they were were Germans. They were Germans from just visiting England. She persuaded them to come to a conference that evening, uh, a conference that evening at that school for Christian young people, And one of them was miraculously saved. And so afterwards, this girl tells Jill this story. It's just crazy, it gives me goosebumps. Uh, She said she was a theological student in Germany. She had come under the influence of some teaching that instead of leading her to an intelligent worship of God, filled her with a lot of doubt and confusion. She had delivered an ultimatum to God whose existence she actually was doubting, and she told God that if he was there, that he should show himself in some way to her, and that he must do this within three months. <laughs> and if he didn't, she told him, I'm just going to quit my schooling, I'm going to quit theology, I'm going quit, to quit religion, and she said, I think I'm even going to quit living because what's, what's, the, what's worth living for anymore? Now, after explaining this, she turned to Jill with great emotion and tears in her eyes, and she said, guess what? Those three months end today. Hmm, I love that story. We forget that God loves to work in ways like that. So what we see in this story and in this conversation today is that Jesus never stops pursuing us. In Psalm 23:6, it says, Surely his goodness and his steadfast love will pursue me relentlessly all the days of my life. And that's from Psalm 23, right? We all know that classic psalm. And I've heard of people say it's as though goodness and mercy are um, those sheepdogs that are nipping at our heels the rest of our life, guiding us toward the Lord. Jesus is on mission here, and nothing is going to stop him, even his own exhaustion, and what we don't realize until a little bit later here is that not even the fact that convention says he shouldn't even be near this woman. In John 4, as we continue in the passage, it says in 7 and 8, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And I want to just look at this woman for a quick second. Why is she here? And and we've we've heard a lot about what we think about this woman, but John actually doesn't say a lot about this woman's life. Um, There probably would have been water in the town. Uh, You don't usually build a town uh, without a well uh, in the village. Usually it was in the the square, you know, in the marketplace. There was usually a well there. Uh, But she is literally walking a mile and a half outside of her town to go draw water at the hottest part of the day, to do the hardest job she's gonna do all alone. Usually the women would go together so they could help each other you know, put the big jars either on their head or on their backs to help each other with the load, but she's going alone. And a lot of commentators will suppose that she goes at this time and by herself because she doesn't want to be seen by other people, right? She just wants to mm, just not be around it, right? Maybe it's shame, maybe it's judgment that's attached to her lifestyle or history. And which we'll find out wary, uh, that she's just or, or later she, that she's probably wary of people and, and of what they're going to say about her behind her back. But again, Jesus is so intentional here. And he actually breaks through three barriers to talk to this, this lady, that she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and that she's probably an outcast. So Jesus is pursuing her and, and just breaking these barriers down one by one. Now, what you don't realize is upon seeing a woman approaching you and you realize, well, I'm alone and I'm a rabbi, you're actually expected to courteously withdraw to a distance of about 20 feet, indicating that it's both safe and culturally appropriate for her to approach the well. Only then could she then move to the well, fill her jar, and be on her way. Rabbis were not allowed to speak to women in private. Most rabbis wouldn't even talk to their own wives and daughters in public. And there was a sect of of rabbis called the bleeding rabbis, because every time a woman would pass by, they'd close their eyes out of holy disgust and usually run into a wall and start literally bleeding. I'm like, really? Is that really smart? I mean, come on, common sense? I don't know. Um, (laughs) So Jesus, as we look at Jesus here, when he sees her approaching him, which he would have, he doesn't move. He doesn't move. And she decides to draw near anyway. And then comes the bigger surprise, which if we don't know the context, we wouldn't realize. He actually asks her for a drink. In John 4:9, the Samaritan woman right away says, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For as John says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, this well that Jesus is resting on would not have had a bucket attached to it. It's not like the classic Jack and Jill story, you know, with the bucket at the top, you know, that's what it comes to mind. But there's no bucket, there's a rope, there's a well, but usually travelers were expected to bring their own bucket. And Jesus could have obviously asked the disciples to leave the bucket behind, but he doesn't, does he? He has a plan. And by deliberately sitting on the well without a bucket, Jesus places himself strategically to be in need of whomever appeared with the necessary equipment. So why would this simple request be so shocking to her? It's not just because she's a woman, but it's particularly because she's a Samaritan. Jews were not allowed to eat or, sh- or even share utensils with Samaritans, because, especially glasses and cups, anything your mouth would touch, because they were considered really unclean. Jews, Jesus actually, so he chooses to ignore, he chooses to ignore what he knows, century-old hostility between the Jews and Samaritans. He rides right over the entrenched gender divide and actually engages this woman in conversation. This is much more of a powerful interaction, these first few verses, than we even give it credit for. You look at our world too, right? We see those deep gulfs of separation between what men and, and man and, and woman and, and you just look at like what the Hollywood and the Golden Globes and you see them just flying hostility back back and forth to each other. There's a lot of seething anger and, and hate and for good reason for some of them, but but I I just wonder, man, is, is that what we're coming towards? Is this greater divide? But what's so interesting in Christ is that the good news is that man and woman and and Jew and Samaritan and black and white can come and all sit at one table because we're united in Christ. He's the one that, that we're united by. Have you ever looked at your small group and looked around the room and thought, how in the world did this strange group of people ever come together and get... I love how you're all looking at each other. <laughs> Look, how did we ever come together and actually do life together? This is, there's no way I would know you if not for Christ, right? No way I would know you if not for Christ. And, and I think diversity is really evidence of the spirit at work in our lives. We come together because of Christ, Uh, For some of us, this is a real challenge to hear this because we still have those barriers up in our lives. And it might just be our own fears and insecurities that have just caused us to have this wall up between people that are just really different from us. You know, and what I love about this church is that within a week here, on a Saturday night, we're actually inviting uh, a Bhutanese refugee, which Michael highlighted today in the announcements, but his name is Nila Upreti, and he's going to be sharing his story and his experience. It's probably much unlike our own. And yet, we're going to get to share a meal with this man. We're actually going to get to, to hear his story and go, wow, like we're not much different, are we? Your story is different, but, but you're just like me. And, and there's so much more in common that we have when we're willing to say, you know what? I'm going to cross that divide. I'm going to cross that barrier. How Christ-honoring is that? Jesus never stops pursuing us. Not ma- no matter what he has to break through. And, and what we know about Jesus is that he even conquers death to be with us. Death itself. Well, then he begins to uncover the very last barrier with this woman. Why she's alone and why she's an outcast. In John 4, we read uh, again in 10 through 14, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink... You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, you have nothing to draw with, and your well, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will become thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water, I give them. Will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And that brings us to our next point. Jesus loves to fill our empty wells. Now it's getting really personal for her. Uh, it's hitting a bit of a nerve inside of her because we see from her reaction here. She kind of shows her cards a little bit and starts to, you hear this little bit of desperation in her tone. And in, in uh, verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water so that I, will not get, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now she's the one asking Jesus for a drink. Funny. No matter how impossible this kind of sounds to her, because obviously, he, obviously she's not truly getting it yet, she is desperate enough to ask for it. And she knows that even though she's speaking literally, what it's doing is that she, she's exposing inside of her this deeper thirst for fulfillment. And then strangely, Jesus tells her to do something. He says immediately in verse 16, go and call your husband and bring him back. And immediately she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Notice her response. I have no husband. Now, most people will actually say that they think she's avoiding telling Jesus the whole truth here. And obviously, she's leaving out a few facts, maybe five of them.
0: <laughs> and
1: I, but I don't really see it like this. If you know anything about the customs of the day, it could have been a number of reasons why she had the past she did. It could have been death. Uh, as a widow, you couldn't work, so you were destitute or you found yourself another man. Uh, Maybe it's a simple need of protection or provision. It could have been divorce. Most people speculate that it was. But in that day, do you realize how rare it was and how hard it was for a woman to get a divorce from her husband? It was unheard of. It was unheard of. It was the man who always did the divorcing. And for a number of reasons, it could have been that she was barren. She was barren. And so husband after husband just kept, kept divorcing her. I mean that gave them the right to actually divorce her. I'm, I'm I'm amazed. So when she says, "I have no husband," I think it's more of a statement that has, that has a deeper meaning than just a flippant, you know, a flippant avoidance. I think it's actually what defined her. I think it was actually the scarlet A that was pinned to her life, and it haunted her wherever she went. I have no husbands. Just think of the rejection after the rejection. Think of the grief, the abandonment, the destitution. I don't know that many of us understand what it's like to have that, that kind of rejection in our lives. Those times, those breakups, where you know we've sensed a little bit of that, where, where the person we've loved has, has walked away. But it kind of makes sense then why she would have come to the well that day fearing further rejection. But what does she get instead? Jesus' response to her is without the slightest hint of condemnation or judgment. And Jesus brings her shame and all of her past and present right there out on the table, but instead of telling her to get her act together, he actually commends her for her honesty. Hmm. Jesus is revealing what she already knows too well. The wells that she has dug in her life have provided no satisfaction for her. They never do hold water, do they? they always run dry. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, my, my people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What are these empty wells? Now, if you've been in this church for any length of time, you've heard this term before, but they're ways that we try to find what only God can give us, right? That's The true peace and true hope and purpose and identity, value and acceptance and worth. C.S. Lewis has this great quote where he says, and I don't have it up on the slide, but he says, never put your identity in something that can be taken away from you. And and it's so easy, isn't it? I remember when I first lost my job and, 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 and I was reeling from just disappointment and rejection and I realized in my time with the Lord that, boy... I had put a lot more of my hope and my, and my security and my identity and my job than I thought I did. And until it was taken away, did I really realize how much I had been looking to that, my job, for my worth. And it's so easy to do because they're good things, right? But they become empty wells when we're looking to them for life. For life, the life that only Jesus can give us, Right? real hope that lasts, real peace that lasts, real joy and purpose that lasts. John seven thirty seven says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whomever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Really? What? That's kind of cool. So here Jesus is. He's identifying her thirst. He's uncovering her empty wells. And he says, Nothing will satisfy your deepest longings except for a long, continuous drink from me. From God's grace through his Holy Spirit. Have you ever tried to just take one sip after you've like done a marathon or you're really really thirsty you realize you haven't drank anything all day and you're like oh my doctor said i should at least drink you know this many ounces a day so you grab a drink do you just take one sip when you're really th- no you're like, you like i mean you guzzle that thing right because when we taste god's grace we can't get enough we can't get enough it quenches a thirst we didn't even know we had Oh, what delight to know it's not dependent on me, that it's a free gift. I mean, grace is the real deal. And do you know why? Do you know why Jesus can quench our thirst? Why he can even promise this to her? Why he can even tell her that I, I can quench your thirst? It's because of what he cried out on the cross. I thirst and it's that he said, I thirst, so that we would never have to say, we thirst. So that we could always be with God and always have access to the living water he provides. I had a, a different story last night, but as I, was, as I was talking last night in the service last night, the Lord literally, right before I walked into this, this story, um, he, he brought something to mind, and I didn't tell it because I, I've learned to ask my husband first before I tell a story about him, <laughs> and so I did, and he's like, sure, okay, and so I'm going to tell you this story instead, and if you want to hear last night's, I'll tell you later. It's fine. It's a good story, um, but when I was first married, and it's just more personal, right? When I was first married, I so did this. I found such a well—a well I'd been waiting for for a long time—in my husband Adam, and I remember thinking that first year was just like you know rose-colored glasses. And and if you talk to us, we'll always tell you it was our second year that was the hardest, <laughs> because I, we started to realize we weren't as perfect as we really thought we were. And, and literally, I thought you know we realized how broken we were. And and what I had done is I had placed a lot of my of my expectations and and. On Adam to be this to be this all for me. I wanted him to be everything for me. And so instead of like spending time with my girlfriends, I kind of isolated myself and just hung out with my husband all the time. And instead of like hanging out with my parents or my family, I would just again just isolate myself thinking well he's my guy now, so he's gonna provide everything I need. And I started getting really frustrated. Like why is he not perfect? This is not okay. I mean, I've waited a long time to have a husband, and, and why does he have his act together yet? And why can't he meet my needs? And, and just these unrealistic expectations. And I remember, you know, complaining to the Lord about it, and, and he just so sweetly said, Heather, I never created Adam to be the only source of life for you. And he will never, ever quench the deep longing the deep longings you have within you. Only I can do that. And I realized that I had pulled back. I wasn't as dependent on the Lord because I had this great guy in my life and, and I wasn't as, as, as balanced in the ways that I was looking for healthy relationships in my life. And, and, and I, I was like, you're right, Lord. He's become an empty well. And here I am getting frustrated at him, but it's really my fault. <laughs> I should have never put that high of an expectation on him. You know, I love, and I've said this quote before, but Augustine says, you know, our hearts are restless until we found our rest in God. And it's true, like we will look for it in so many other places. It's so natural to want to look for it in other places, but we won't find it. We'll get disappointed and we'll get frustrated and, and we'll get upset and angry and even hurt. But God's saying, don't look for it there, look for it here in me, in me. What I love later on is that this woman makes this just incredible statement of faith and kind of expectation. And it's kind of surprising to theologians that she even knew this information. But in John 4, 25 through 26, she says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain all this stuff to us. He'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus does this. It's so sweet. He declares, I The one speaking to you, I am He. The Samaritan woman was the first person to whom Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah in the Gospel of John. And he only did it twice in the Gospel of John, and one of them is to this no-name woman. He tells her something that he didn't even tell Nicodemus a chapter before, who you would think he had a right to know, right? He says, I am He, the Messiah. What an honor. But Jesus isn't done yet. He isn't just there to show her her need. He isn't just there to tell her that he's her savior, he's the Messiah. But he's also there to send her. Mm. So the last point is Jesus calls no-name people to do great things in his kingdom. In verse 16, which we've read before, Jesus commands her to go, call, and bring her husband now, these three commands require that she, a woman, become a witness to a man, and in her world, that is not okay. It's not permissible, and it's not plausible. Really? You want to go tell my husband to come here? You think he's going to listen to me? I'm just a woman. Literally, that's what she probably would have thought. But Jesus assumes that it is, and he, has, he challenges her to believe that with him, her witness can be judged as reliable. So when she departs from the well, she actually expands her mandate and witnesses to the entire community. In John 28 through 30, then leaving her her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. John 4, later on, 30, 39, verse 39, many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. What? I mean, this foreign single woman with a, probably a really bad reputation who's had five husbands was now living with a man who wasn't her husband boldly and compassionately goes back into the town she just avoided that afternoon. I mean, what? <laughs> wow. <laughs> and they didn't say, who the heck do you think you are? you know, you shouldn't be talking to me. Like, they didn't just push her aside. There must have been something on her. When God calls us, boy, you better believe he's going to equip us to do what he's called us to do. And whether it's authority in her words or it's vulnerability in the way that she says he's told me everything I ever did, everything. And look, she doesn't say he's told me everything that ever happened to me. She's not a victim. She's owning it. Everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? a beautiful invitation. This woman evangelist in her town. And so then, you know, here Jesus sees these people coming toward, and it's the whole town. I mean, it's just this woman leading the pack. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Nothing about her past ever presented an obstacle for Jesus to accept her and subsequently call her into leadership into Jesus' kingdom. Jesus loves to redeem us, to take our deepest insecurities, the things that we think absolutely disqualify us from being used by God at all, and he flips it, on there, flips it right on our heads. Because he loves to use the weak. He loves to use our deepest insecurities. He loves to use us in those ways because it shows us we need him. We can't do it alone. And then he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. What have we let stop us from engaging with Christ, from being used by God? Are we waiting for some big break, some big opportunity? And so instead of serving maybe where we are, we're just kind of hanging out in the fringes on the sidelines? We've got to learn how to play now. Jesus pursues us because he wants to be with us. It's all about intimacy with Jesus. And then he fills us because he wants us to be dependent on him, for him to be the life-giving source that that we depend on. And then he calls us because he chooses us and he wants to use us. Every single one of us here has a purpose on our lives to be used for a greater thing that we might have ever thought of. So hear this in closing. Nothing in your past presents an obstacle to your acceptance by Jesus. And subsequently, your calling into his kingdom. I love the song that we sang Earlier this morning, Jesus is calling. Will we accept? Will we say yes? Because he's always inviting us to surrender a little bit more. Why don't we go ahead and stand? We're going to take some time just to wait on the Lord. We call this ministry time in our church. And it gives us a chance to not only listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying, but also respond to what he's doing inside of us. So, Lord, we just, we ask you would come. Holy Spirit, come. Hmm. Yeah, we need to be filled by you. Lord Jesus, come by your spirit. Hmm. So I had a, a picture on my way to church last night, and just coming back to mind, and uh, there was, um, I'm not going to share the picture, but it was, it was like a physical thing in your life uh, that you really hate about yourself, and it's something physical, and, and it's not just that you hate it, but it's actually disqualifying you from being used by the Lord in the ways that you've maybe even dreamed of doing, and it might be because it's, it's, it's causing you to feel like you have to step back, and not engage. Um, and it could be for rightful for good reason, right? It could be something really physical that's stopping you from engaging and doing what it is you feel like maybe the Lord is calling you to do. and And so if that's if that's at all you, we I just want to say we love to pray for physical, for physical healing in this church. We really, I mean, To hear the praise reports from people, I mean, that's something I've really loved being on staff, because I get to hear the stories of people that say, did you know somebody prayed for me and I walked out of this church healed? Guess what? That was a well moment for that person, right? We never know the name of this woman, right? But you wonder, she proudly wore I'm the woman from the well because that was where she met Jesus. That's where she walked away changed. And this time of prayer where we get to just say, God, I'm gonna lay down the things that are hindering me or I'm gonna ask again for your healing is, is the place where we come with expectation that he might just, we might just walk out of these doors changed. These might be our well moments. And then I had one more thing. Um, I know we talked a little bit about rejection earlier. And, and the Lord brought to mind, he said, you know, there's some of us here that have. we still carry around the hurt of, of those reject, that rejection. And it has so burdened us and so pulled us back from engaging with people wholeheartedly that, that it's stopping us from, from really being in the fringes of God's kingdom and being used by him. And, and, and he just doesn't want that for you anyways. He just doesn't want his kids to be burdened. It just breaks his heart to see us so pinned down by what others have done to us. So if if that's you, if rejection has been a a real sore spot, I mean, he's not going to take away what happened, but he is going to take away. I've seen it time and time again, the pain of that. And he's going to release just peace into your life that you've never known. And so I would encourage you to come forward for prayer. We're going to worship, just one last song. And uh, I want to, unless Penny has something. Yes, okay, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, uh, yeah I, I felt
0: like there were women here that had been held back, maybe in your past, maybe another church or whatever, mm-hmm. and the Lord, well, the enemy is really trying to use that against you, and the Lord wants to break the power of that over you, to use mm-hmm. you. I felt like there were women, and I think there's also just men and women who have things in their past, like the woman at the well that um, you're just, uh, you know, you, you feel like you're damaged goods. That was the sense I had. Mm-hmm. And the enemy's using that, too, just to keep to keep you back. But God wants to use you just like the woman at the well. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Thank you. Come forward and have that broken off of you. Hey, everybody. Mm-hmm. I just, uh... <laughs> over the past several weeks of these teachings that everybody has been doing um with Danny and everybody and, and just uh the types of uh, uh encouragement that they, that our pastors have been giving us to go out and do things to reach out to people to uh um to bring them in and i feel like some people are looking for a time that that's supposed to start uh maybe as they look at the pastors they think well that's their job And they do that all the time. But in the Great Commission, that is our job. That's everyone's job. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each and every individual in this church has been given that um, command. Go and reach out to everyone that's um, in the community, anybody that you encounter. And I feel like some people hold themselves back thinking um, that this is something that they have to be told again or wait for or to have somebody else tell them well, this is how you're specifically supposed to do this. And that's not what he's telling us. That is um, that is for us to do now in, in every small way, any big way, any way that we can. That's our job. And not to hold ourselves back, not to wait for God to say, well, now I want you to do this. Or, hey, you're supposed to be a pastor or whatever. Um, but to actually do that now, yeah. to reach out to everyone now.
1: That's good. you so come forward we're gonna just bless you guys we're gonna have people come on, on either side of you just pray for you and bless you guys with guys girls with girls just come forward as we worship We're so grateful for the ways that you do pursue us, Lord. How you are not done with us yet, Lord. I just pray that there would be a, a sweet just lightness that would be just placed on everyone here, God. Lord, that you are working, that it's not on them, but that you are the one that are working in their lives, God. That we would lean into you more, God. That we would trust you more in your timing, And in what you have for us, God. Lord, we trust that you will make it clear. And we trust that it's on you, Lord. That you will direct our steps. Mm. I just pray peace and I pray blessing over everyone here in the name of Jesus. I hope uh, you have a wonderful afternoon. Bless you guys. And if you haven't yet signed up for the men's conference, this weekend is the last weekend to do so. So make sure you uh, grab one of those... Uh, pamphlets in the in the lobby.